For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Okay, we're going to be looking at uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 1 through 38, which I uh, entitled Crossing Racial and Cultural Lines. And I think that this topic has particular relevance to us today, especially in our culture, in our country, which, you know, arguably is more divided today than ever. It's very surprising because I know that there was a time where people were feeling very optimistic about the kind of progress we were making in terms of, you know, racial equality and healing. And yet it seems like in the last decade or, or, or so, it seems like we've taken a number of steps back. Surprisingly, the Bible speaks to this issue and gives us a theological basis for unity, not only racially, but also to bridge all differences between people. Let's begin in chapter 8, verse 1, to kind of give us a reminder of where we're, where we're at in the book of Acts. We're told that Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. If you can recall, last week we studied this passage, Acts chapter 7, which talked about Stephen's defense and his eventual murder. And we're told that one of the guys standing there was Saul, who we'll later find out becomes the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9, and that he actually was complicit in the killing of Stephen, that he was one of the witnesses whom the high council summoned to bear false witness against Stephen, which eventually led to his stoning. And so we're told a great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, I think that Luke might be using some hyperbole here. He probably doesn't mean every single believer, but we know that probably most of the believers scattered as this pogrom was, was initiated in Jerusalem to root out these Christians who were talking about this Jesus guy being the Messiah. And you can imagine how difficult this must have been. People who had to leave their homes, uproot, uproot their lives, leave their professions. And you can imagine how they must have felt as they were living in a foreign land in the surrounding area around Jerusalem Wondering, how could God allow this to happen? I mean, things were working out really well in the early church up to this point. Remember that description we read in Acts chapter 2 where we're told that they had this incredible community where they were unified with one another. They were together in a common purpose and following God and that they were reaching many thousands of people. And yet in an instant, at the moment that Stephen dies, all that uh, they had was gone. And this incredible community God had given them, it's almost like its entire existence vanished at that point, and they were scattered abroad. And it's easy, I think, to feel like in situations where you encounter suffering or unjust persecution, to wonder, has God lost control of the situation? I'm certain that these guys were wondering that. As they were looking on at their, their guy, Stephen, one of the real bright Christian workers in the early church, 
extinguished. You know, they were facing this uh, incredible persecution. Well, we're told that they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And I think this has relevance because if you rewind the tape all the way back to Acts chapter 1, God said that he wasn't going to allow the message of Christ to just be contained within Jerusalem, but that it was going to move outward in concentric circles going out to the entire world. We read about this in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 when Jesus was ready to ascend back into heaven, he gives his disciples a final pep talk. He says to them, wait here, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. These guys, because of this persecution, were forced out of Jerusalem. And we're told in verse 4, the believers who were scattered started to preach the good news about Jesus Christ wherever they went. Now, I'm certain that the thought had occurred to them while they were sitting there in Jerusalem. Their community was growing. They were reaching most of the people there in Jerusalem. And I'm sure that they probably thought to themselves, we'll just heap you know, these blessings up and sort of keep it to ourselves. But God seemed to have a different plan in mind that he wanted this to go out to the rest of the world, that he didn't want them to just hoard this blessing to themselves. And so we're told that they were scattered and then also preached the good news wherever they went. I think this points to how God uses our suffering and really fits it into the larger plan of furthering his kingdom. A lot of times we can't see that in the moment. We feel the pain. We, we feel... The, the suffering, the grief, and it's hard for us to see beyond that. And yet, God isn't working from our time frame. He doesn't see things the same way we do, where we're just looking at what's, in, what's ahead of us. He's looking at the big picture. And things that seem like huge setbacks for us may actually be part of God's plan. Not that he's the one who's causing the suffering, but that he allows it in this greater scheme that he's trying to fulfill in history. I was just thinking recently about how one of our partners in Cambodia, there's this woman there who is an incredible Christian worker. She has um, been really one of the pioneers of the movement in Cambodia, which has spread and and reached thousands, tens of thousands of, of Cambodian people. And within the last four or five years, she was diagnosed with a a pretty serious illness and she had to go back to Holland because of her heart condition and had to stay there permanently. And I know that many of us who are connected to the work that God's doing over there, we're wondering to ourselves, how could God allow something like that to happen? And we were worried that the work there would just end up fizzling out. And eventually what we found is that there were five people that she had been training up, national workers, Cambodians, that instantly took over that work. And it made me realize, you know, as I was thinking about this today, had God not allowed that to come into her life, it probably would have been really easy for them to cling on to her because she's a visionary. She's charismatic. She has tons of experience. 
And yet maybe God was forcing the situation so that she would be able to pass the baton onto these people. Because that's really the vision that we want. We want national workers. We, we, we want the, the Westerners to leave eventually and to allow the national workers to carry on the work. And it might be that God knew that that would not happen as long as she was there. And so our suffering fits into God's larger plan, whether we see it in the moment. We're told in verse 5, Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs that he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims, and many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in this city. So Philip goes to this area, Samaria as it's called, and this is located in the northwestern part of Israel. And the people that he encounters as he's sharing the good news about Jesus Christ are completely receptive, and many of them actually come to Christ. Well, we're told a man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be somebody great. Everyone from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as the great one, the power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. So it's not clear what he was claiming. It might be that he was claiming to be a divine figure or that he was an emanation of, a de- of the deity, and so that he was a representative of a God. Either way, people were worshiping him as though he was a divine figure. And we actually hear about him later in the middle of the second century. One of the early church fathers, Justin Martyr, actually describes a man from Samaria named Simon who performed these miraculous works And that people actually worshipped him as God. So we have some extra biblical documentation about this guy. So he must have been a powerful figure in the Samaritan culture. And we're told the people believe Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God and and the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many of the men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself believed and was baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went, and he was amazed by the signs and great miracles Philip performed. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they went and sent Peter and John there. As soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. And then we're told the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands upon these believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay, this is where things start to get a little funky in our narrative. Okay, if you read your New Testament, you're familiar with the concept that the moment you receive Christ, where you turn to God and ask for forgiveness through what Jesus did on the cross, that at that very moment, God actually comes and makes his dwelling In your life through the Holy Spirit. So those two things happen simultaneously, instantaneously. And yet we're told that the Samaritans actually came to belief in Christ, but it was only after Peter and John, after some time later, 
came and laid their hands upon these believers that then the Holy Spirit came upon them. So this raises the question, and really this is something that we see throughout the book of Acts, and we're going to address it as we encounter it, that there are in some cases a delay from when people believe in Christ and when the Holy Spirit actually comes upon them. And I think it's easy for us to look on that and say, well, maybe that's the way things ought to be, or that's normative. But we need to keep in mind that this is a very unique event in history. And so it's bad interpretation for us to look at a narrative passage like this and to draw application directly to our lives without first understanding the situation. So it raises this question, why did God delay the Holy Spirit's arrival? And I think the answer to this would be racism and prejudice, which wouldn't be very apparent to us because we don't really have that much understanding of, a, of biblical background. But if you study the background here, you'll know that there was hatred between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. Because in 722 BC, Assyria came and attacked the northern kingdom of Israel. At this time, Israel was split north and south. And in the south, the tribe of Judah occupied most of that area. And then the ten tribes, uh, or ten and a half tribes, occupied the northern half. And so when Assyria attacked the northern part of Israel, they completely decimated the population, killed most of the people there. And the remaining people, they said, you know, there are probably still people here and it's impossible for us to completely annihilate this people. And so if we can't kill them, we're going to breed them out of existence. And so they transplanted Assyrian people into that area to intermarry with the Jewish people living there. And that resulted in the Samaritan people. Now, sometime later, the tribe of Judah was deported into Babylon and eventually came back to the land sometime later. And guess who was there? The Samaritan people. And so there was conflict between these people because the Jews looked upon the Samaritans as sort of like half-breed Jews. And the Samaritans felt like they were the true people of God and that the Jewish people were not. And so there was rivalry and conflict and really hatred between these people. Not only that, there was also religious differences between these people as well. The Samaritans, from what we can gather in history, rejected everything but the first five books of the Old Testament, whereas the Jewish people embraced all of it. And so they had differing scripture and they also had a differing view of where God's holy place was. We know that, for example, they didn't view Jerusalem as God's holy city. They viewed Samaria as God's holy place. And so they set up their own temple on Mount Gerasim. We get little samples of the, of the racism that existed between these two people in the New Testament. For example, in John chapter 4, verse 7 through 9, we're told that uh, Jesus comes up to this woman in Samaria and says, hey, why don't you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew 
and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And John comments, he gives us a little, a little note here, for Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. That might be a little bit of an understatement because there were actually wars that were going on between these people. It was more than that they didn't associate with each other. They hated each other. They wanted to kill each other. And so this probably drove a lot of the exclusion that you see early on in the church where people were probably astonished. You know, we need to send Peter and John there to make sure that they see with their own eyes that these guys have actually come to Christ and have the spirit. In their grid of thinking, there was no way that a Samaritan could ever come to belief in Christ. You know, the other thing is that Peter held the keys to the kingdom, which meant that he had a unique role in opening up new borders for the message of Christ. Jesus tells him in Matthew 16, verse 18 and 19, he says, I tell you that you're Peter, and upon this rock I'm going to build my church. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth, that is, whatever you unlock, uh, will be... Uh, or uh, lock will be bound in heaven and whatever you release or unlock on earth will have been released in heaven. And so he's saying that you have a unique authority as my spokesperson in opening up these new boundaries. So in a lot of ways, Peter had to be there for each successive stage as God crossed new borders with the message of Christ. And so we see that each time God moves out from these concentric circles, Peter is there. He's present when these things happen. And we'll see him show up in Acts chapter 10 when this guy named Cornelius actually comes to Christ. I think the third thing, the third answer to this question would be that Peter was the most respected leader in the early church. And God probably needed him to vouch for the Samaritan people because people would have just been completely shocked that a Samaritan could be considered one of God's children. And so if Peter validated it, people probably within the Jerusalem church, the remaining people would have been more likely to listen and accept the Samaritan people. Now, you know, you talk to some people and uh, they believe that the Bible either promotes or in some way invites prejudice or xenophobia. But in reality, when you study the Bible, it actually fights against prejudice, racism, and the xenophobia that our culture says it propagates. You know, when you look at other world religions, some of them actually give a theological framework for maintaining discrimination and oppression. Some of us feel like, well, Eastern religion is really cool, but a lot of times we haven't really studied Eastern religion to know that some of the theological principles they put forward actually propagate racial tension and class divide. For example, in Hinduism, if you're familiar with uh, the teaching of Hinduism, there's the class system. Now, that's not just a social thing. That actually comes from their scriptures. 
in their teaching, there is a primeval being or primordial being from which the different castes come from. And the highest caste comes from the head of this being. And then the lowest caste, the sudras, come from the feet of this being. And then there's the fifth group, which doesn't come from this being at all, which people would regard as the untouchables. These are people who have built up so much karma in their previous life that they have been reincarnated into this lowest caste. And so these people are not allowed to have certain kinds of jobs. Most of the time they're stuck cleaning latrines, doing the most menial jobs. Many of them are incredibly poor. And people from the higher caste actually discriminate, discriminate against these people and won't even lift a finger to help them. Because by trying to help these people, you're essentially trying to uh, mess with karmic law. You're interfering with karmic law. And so they not only disregard these people, they make sure that they stay in their place. You know, you think about Mormonism. For many years, Mormonism taught that black people were cursed. And they taught that the reason why people were black was because God cursed them and they were scorched as a result. And they taught this for many, many years until eventually one of their prophets had a revelation and was like, well, actually, uh, that's not true anymore. Very conveniently. Now, when we look at the Bible, you know, God speaks about the equality that really our culture has adopted as its number one value several millennia ago. This, this thing that we talk about, which is a modern concept of equality, guess what? It's been around for a really long time. It's been in the Bible. And the Bible speaks in pretty groundbreaking ways about race, class, and gender. You know, when you look at the creation account in Genesis, God tells us that he created man in his image. That is really the basis for equality among human beings. Because each and every one of us bear the stamp of God's divine nature, that we are spiritual beings. And so, thus, we have an equal status because of that. You know, you look at the book of uh, Jonah, this book in the Old Testament, which really, the whole book is about how God is calling on his people to go and reach out to those people who are different than them. He calls this guy Jonah a prophet and says, I want you to go to these Ninevites who are enemies of Israel, hated people. And so he runs to the coast of Israel and he finds, you know, a ship captain and says, uh, where are you headed to? And he's like, uh, west to Tarshish. He's like, uh, great, can I join you? He's like, sure. Guess what? Nineveh was east. And so he wanted to go as far away from Nineveh as he possibly could. And of course, you know, God wrangled him back through divine circumstances and spit him on the shores of Nineveh. And uh, reluctantly, he preaches this message of repentance and many of the people in Nineveh are actually receptive, even though he's reluctant. And so, really, that shows the kind of pattern that, that, that 
emerges among God's people that there's a reluctance to go beyond the confines of its own culture. And God actually has to force his people out into the world. Also, you see with the Apostle Paul, he makes some incredibly uh, edgy statements. People in the first century must have just, you know, as they were reading some of these things, their jaw must have just dropped to the floor. They had to roll their tongue back into their mouth uh, as they read some of the things that he said because it would have contradicted so many of the things that their culture were telling them. For example, in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, so neither, no racial divides here. There's neither slave nor free socioeconomic lines. There's neither male nor female gender lines that divide people, for you are all one in Christ. In other words, it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how much influence you have. It doesn't matter what nation you come from. God has set the bar right here. And everybody who wants to follow Christ needs to humble themselves and enter the same way. And so there is a theological basis for real unity in the body of Christ. What about Ephesians 2 verse 19? So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with God's holy people. You are members of God's family. God says that it doesn't matter what race, what, ne- what ethnicity you're from, what culture you're from. He says that if you come to Christ, if you receive Christ, you can be a part of his family. You can be a citizen of heaven. It's amazing. You know, really, Christians also led the way in the abolition of slavery. A lot of people don't know this, but in 1833 in Britain, uh, William Wilberforce, driven by his Christian convictions, actually was able to legislate uh, the abolition of slavery throughout most of the British Empire. In 1833, nearly 30 years before the Emancipation Proclamation was signed here in the United States. And so Christians were on the leading edge of the abolition of slavery. Now, Now, to be fair, there were Christians here in America who were also slave owners. But the key here to understand is that there's no theological basis for that. You can't look to the Bible and and give a valid argument for why that's okay. In fact, it's just the opposite. Now, when we talk about our culture combating racism and Christianity combating racism, the aim really are the same. They're aiming at the same thing, but their approach to doing that couldn't be any more different. You know, in our culture, it charges that only majority culture shows racism. It's the majority culture oppressing the minorities. You know, it really blames ignorance as the main culprit for racism. And yet, when you think about it, we live in a culture today that is more educated, more literate than any, than any, uh, than really most cultures in the world, certainly more literate than any time in our history and more educated, and yet we see racism continually cropping up. And so that's just a simplistic answer that really doesn't work. 
It's not enough. You know, Christianity charges that all people exhibit fallen tendencies, and that's part of the picture here. It's not just unfamiliarity with different people. It's also that we have a natural tendency to dislike, to be suspicious of people different than us. You know, in our culture, it calls on people to respect diversity and tries to create unity through proximity. You know, you see schools today where they're, you know, busing people from different uh, areas of the city to try to get some diversity within the school. And, you know, I think that's a good idea. I don't think that we should try to segregate our schools, but simply having proximity doesn't equate to unity. Being around somebody doesn't mean that you're not united with them. You know, Christianity calls on us to love people and to move toward them, even though they're different from us. So very different. It's not about just like dealing with somebody who's different than us. It's actually that God's calling on us to, to move out and love people who are different than us. They're not the same thing. You know, in our culture, it calls for minority groups to gain power through social, uh, social power and political power. And yet, what's that really going to do? Empowering one people over another will just lead to the same thing. We see examples of this in the world. For example, in Iraq, you know, the minority culture there are the Sunni Muslims. And yet they dominate the Shiite Muslims who are in the majority. So there you have a minority group that has power over the majority group. So whoever has power is going to dominate the other. That's just the way it works. That's, that's human nature. That's not the solution. Christianity calls for self-denial for the sake of others. What a different picture. It's not about making sure that there is equal power among the minorities or majority culture, that there's just equality. It's about laying down our rights and loving one another. You know, in our culture, it calls for tolerance and learning to accept people who are different from us. Whereas Christianity gives us a theological basis for loving people different from us. You know, tolerance is not really the same as unity. We just have to get that straight in our heads. I can tolerate somebody that I hate. Tolerate being around them, having to see them, having to interact with them occasionally. Think about your boss that you dislike. You learn to tolerate them, but you wouldn't say that you're unified with your boss, right? Unity implies love, a real connection. And the Bible says that whether that expresses itself in care and self-sacrifice and love, we are united with one another in Christ. So we have a true basis for loving one another. Now, as we move on, Philip isn't done. We're told in verse 26, as for Philip, an angel of the Lord said to him, go south down to the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and he met the treasurer of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Kandaki, or some translations say Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. The eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship and now he was returning. So Philip meets this guy who happens to be a powerful political figure in Ethiopia. We're also told this side note that he's a eunuch, which you're unfamiliar with that term. Um, I don't know how to explain that in a delicate way. Let's just say he was, um, 
missing important parcels of his um, package. But, you know, what they would do a lot of times in the ancient world, they would uh, castrate uh, young boys, either that they wanted to develop as people who would serve in the high court because they wanted to make sure that these, these men wouldn't, uh, you know, mess with the concubines that the king had. Or if they were really good singers, they wanted to keep their voices high. True story. So here's this guy, an influential dude, and Philip runs into him. We're told, seated in his carriage, he was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. And the Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over there. Walk beside the carriage. I mean, Luke tells us that there was an audible voice. Maybe it was a subjective feeling that he had. I know that God will sometimes prompt me or nudge me when I'm in certain situations where I'm surrounded by non-Christian people where he will maybe nudge me to go and talk to somebody or introduce myself to someone or maybe even share Christ with somebody. That's exactly what was happening here. And so Philip ran over and heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. Philip asked, do you understand what you're reading? So he's, you know, sort of jogging beside this carriage as this guy is reading the book of Isaiah. And the man replied, how can I unless someone instructs me? I'm sure at this point Philip's like, okay, well, why don't you stop this cart and let me catch my breath and I can help you out. And he urged Philip to come into the carriage and sit with him. Well, the passage of scripture he had been reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. So he was reading from this incredible Old Testament passage, Isaiah 53, which prophesies, it predicts the coming of Jesus, the anointed one of God. What an amazing opportunity. I mean, for those of us who are interested in serving God and doing Christian work, you know, we would be salivating over an opportunity like this, where somebody is reading Isaiah 53 and they're like, can you explain to me what this means? I mean, that's just like, you know, having the ball and the tee ball and, and just, you know, you got a bat in hand. You're like, this is going to be too easy. Now, for those of us who aren't familiar with the Bible, there are hundreds of Old Testament prophecies that predict not only the coming of Jesus, but also the manner of his death and resurrection. And I wanted to give you a little bit more from Isaiah 53. I clipped in some verses from it just so you can get a sample of how incredible these are. We're told in verse 3 and 4, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. If you ever read the gospel accounts about Jesus' life, he was a man who was rejected all of his life. There were suspicions that he was actually a bastard because Mary was pregnant before she was married to Joseph. And so I'm certain that there was snickering and a lot of gossip about him. And then when he started his public ministry, we're told that the people rejected him and his message. We're told, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. 
I'm certain as the people standing there at the foot of the cross were looking on at Jesus suffering, they must have thought to themselves, God is cursing him for something that he did wrong. And yet, they would have been mistaken. In verse 5, we're told, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we were healed. So he wasn't suffering for his own sin. He became a curse for us so that we might avoid the curse of God. You know, he says he was pierced for our transgressions, talking directly about what happened there at the cross. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter and a sheep before his shears is silent. Again, if you read the account there of Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate, we're told that Pilate questioned him, and yet Jesus stood there silent, saying nothing. And so this, this mirrors, this matches the account that we read about in the Gospels. And we're, we're told in verse 8 and 9, Who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. This being a euphemism for death, being cut off from the land of the living. Now, some people, skeptics of the Bible have said, well, this is talking about Israel, not Jesus or an individual. And yet, look at verse 8. It says, who can speak of his descendants, speaking about the suffering servant. But then he also refers to the people of Israel. He says that this person, this individual, would die for the transgression of my people. So it can't be Israel. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Again, a rich and prominent Jewish official, this guy named Joseph of Arimathea, pled for the body of Jesus and actually interred him in his own hand-hewn tomb. It was reserved for the rich. And yet we're told it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. Wait a second. You know, I mean, this is where, this is where the rubber starts to skid. You're like, what? I thought this guy died. And yet Isaiah says that he will prolong his days. And this fits with what we read in the New Testament, that Jesus not only died, but was also raised from the dead, and that he lives on. Now, some of us might be thinking to ourselves, this is probably a neat trick where Christians actually inserted an Old Testament pa- or uh, this Christian teaching into an Old Testament passage. And yet, that's not just unlikely, it's impossible In 1947, a Bedouin boy was uh, throwing rocks in uh, the Dead Sea region and actually threw a rock into a cave where he heard pottery smash. And as he climbed up in there, he found these incredible scrolls, which we now call the Dead Sea Scrolls. And one of the greatest findings in the Dead Sea Scrolls is this this, uh, scroll of Isaiah that contains all 66 chapters. Here's a picture of uh, the Isaiah scroll. <clears throat> they carbon dated this scroll um, four different times to give it a range of 335 to 107 BC. So there's, there's that calibrated range. And if you look 
right there toward the, the, the break in the page on the right-hand side, you see that little thumbprint there, the scribal th- thumbprint? That right there represents Isaiah 53, verse 5 and 7. He was pierced for our transgressions, and like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter. And so it's impossible that Christians were able to insert this back into the Old Testament in order to validate Jesus. You know, when you look at something like this, it really raises the question, what am I to make of this? I, don't, I think it's so compelling, you can't just dismiss it. I think it's at the very least worthy of considering even further. Well, we're told finally that the eunuch asked Philip, tell me, was the prophet talking about himself or someone else? And so from the very beginning, with this same scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. You know, the Bible says that God has good news for you, but it's preceded by bad news. The bad news is that we are separated from God because of the things that we've done wrong. You've done things that have offended God and render you guilty. The good news, however, is that God loves you and has shown you incredible mercy through Jesus. And by simply placing our faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross, we can receive forgiveness from God. Well, we're told in verse 36 and 38, as they rode along, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, there's some water. Why can't we be, uh, I be baptized? And he ordered the carriage to stop, and they went down to the water, and Philip baptized him there. So there you have Acts chapter 8. You know, really, a summary of this last part would be, it's shocking that the first non-Jewish believer was an African man. It's awesome. You know, it just really... Uh, gives a statement of what God was doing, that he was immediately crossing these racial lines that divided people, not only of the ancient world, but people today in our culture. Secondly, this exchange may have been more influential than we think. There's actually a group in northern Ethiopia uh, called the Coptic Church, which is very different now than the, um, you know, biblical Christianity but they trace their lineage all the way back to this Ethiopian eunuch 2,000 years ago. Thirdly, cross-cultural unity bears witness to the reality of Christ. When you look around a room and you see people who love one another, who are coming not only from different backgrounds racially, but also different classes of people, people who are into different things, it shows that there's something unique about what's going on here. And it's not because we're like cool people and we just like love a lot of people. We're very accepting. It's not what it is. What binds us all together is our love for following Christ, the unity that we have through the Holy Spirit. I remember um, when I first came around, I uh, went to our yearly vacation which used to be at Holden Beach, and I was rooming with this, uh, this one, you know, suburban white dude from Westerville. <clears throat> and uh, he was like a punk rocker and stuff like that. And uh, I, was, I had kind of a, a background where I was, you know, from an urban background. I, I grew up in Chicago, and, you know, I was kind of hood or whatever. And so here I am, you know, listening to, um, you know, The Descendants, 
and uh, black flag with this dude. And I'm like, what? Why are we rooming together? This is so weird, you know? That was, you know, for me, that was a crystallizing moment where I realized, you know, the only reason that we're in this same room here together and that we're even friends happens to be because of our unity in Christ. I wouldn't have chosen this. And, uh, you know, he remains to this day one of my close friends. So let's draw some conclusions. I think, first of all, racism has no place in God's spiritual community. I know that goes without saying, probably here, but, you know, some of us grew up in backgrounds where we were taught uh, things that, that uh, gives us this propensity toward prejudice. Maybe not racism. You know, racism to me implies hatred. But I think that uh, all of us possess some prejudice. And it may not be racial prejudice, but it just might be prejudice of people who are different than us. That we sort of veer away from them because we can't relate to them. Secondly, God has been committed to cross-cultural mission from the very beginning. We read about this in the Old Testament, and he makes it very clear in the New Testament that he wants us to go out. That Jerusalem was in the rearview mirror and that he wanted this message of Christ to go out to the world. Third, we will never get to a point where we've reached everyone in our culture. Some people are like, well, there's plenty of people to reach here, so we just stick to our own people. God says that we'll never come to an end of that and that we'll never be able to accomplish his mission of sharing the message of Christ to the rest of the world if we just try to reach our own people. Fourth, it's not enough to say that I'm willing to include people if they just want to join in with us. God calls on us to reach out to people regardless of race, class, and culture. And so, you know, I would challenge some of you. And as you're sort of milling around down on campus, sort of uh, unaware of your surroundings, you know, maybe God is placing people in your life, surrounding you with people that he wants you to reach out to. But because of your... I wouldn't say prejudice, but because, you know, you're looking for people who are like you, you're missing those opportunities. You know, you think to yourself, well, I'm this kind of person, and I think I would be good at being able to reach the same kind of people. And yet, God might be plopping someone right in front of you that he wants you to open up your mouth to and, and, and talk to about the message of Christ. And so we need to open up the possibilities and to uh, see that our mission is to bring the message of Christ throughout the world. Yeah, thanks to you give us a solution, an answer to uh, one of the real tense topics in our culture today, Lord. Um, we thank you that the solution isn't to uh, try to legislate something or to try to, you know, get a summit for, um, you know, racial healing or something like that, but that uh, you call on... Uh, us individually to change our hearts and that uh, you work to root out the prejudice and, um, you know, the, the fear and uh, discomfort we have with people who are different than us and that you call on us to uh, reach out to those people and to, and to get into their world. And so uh, we thank you that your answer is adequate. And um, we thank you, too, for just, you know, the, this room that... Uh, you know, is very diverse, 
And um, it's cool just to think, too, that it's not like a strategy that we planned on where we were trying to, you know, reach more uh, Indian people or more Asians or something like that. But um, you have just uh, organically made us a, a diverse group, and it shows that you are a God who um, really is behind uh, what's going on here. And so uh, we pray that we would become a light that uh, attracts people who look on and wonder, you know, how uh, um, our, you know, country and our world will ever uh, endure some of the racial tensions and uh, cultural tensions that we see. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.